Welcome to an exclusive recording of the Shepherd's Path, the Seerah of the Prophet wasallam, taught by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif rahimahullah in July of 2008. This episode is brought to you by Al-Maghrib on-site events. For the past 20 years, Al-Maghrib has brought in-depth and quality Islamic education to cities around the world. From weekend seminars to inspiring ilm nights, conferences, retreats, and more. Life-changing seminars and events with renowned teachers coming to your hometown. Our student family stretches across 40 cities in four continents and has grown to the largest student body studying Islam in the Western world. So the Prophet wasallam, as we saw here, um, from birth till 40 years in Mecca, when, when he came near to the age of 40, the Prophet wasallam. As Aisha radiallahu anha says, Hubbiba ilayhi al-khala. Aisha radiallahu anha reports that the commencement of the divine inspiration to Allah's apostle sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was in the form of good dreams which came true like bright daylight and then the love of seclusion was bestowed upon him. The love of seclusion. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to love to go up to the mountain, Jabal al-Nur. He used to love to go up there and do tahannuth. Tahannuth, which is explained in the hadith, is, is like worshipping and contemplating for many days after the other. The Prophet wasallam, even though this hadith is narrated by Aisha radiallahu anha, um, the Prophet wasallam married Aisha later in, in uh, Medina, so the Prophet wasallam only had one wife at that time, and that was Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. He married Khadija radiallahu anha at the age of 25. And so they'd been married for 15 years, and all of his children, sallallahu alayhi wa all of his children came from Khadija except one, and that was Ibrahim. His son Ibrahim, all of his children came, other than Ibrahim, all of his children came from Khadija, All the boys, and by the way, we mentioned the sons of the Prophet, all the boys died in infancy. All the boys died in infancy. So Khadija radiallahu anha, and I'm going to talk later on a little bit more about Khadija radiallahu anha. Khadija radiallahu anha is, is coming up later on. But the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa his relationship with Khadija was such a loving one and such an understanding one that you imagine that a woman, she's married and her husband says to her, I would like to go and, you know, spend some time up in a mountain. What would a woman do to him at that point? Okay. Normally a woman, at that point, her husband says, give me some time. You know, she'd get very angry, correct? She'd say, get very angry, be very unsupportive, even though, you know. But you'll see Khadija radiallahu anha, she knew the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa And so the relationship wasn't a relationship like that. The relationship was one of that he wanted to go up to the cave and worship Allah for many days in the cave. What would she do? She would actually send food for him and support him with her money so that he could do this. And so you'll never see that she gave him any trouble for that. The Prophet used to go up and do this tahannuth and seclude himself for many days. And now after this, like someone might come later and say, you know what, I want to go up into a cave as well. And I want to seclude myself. And you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to just, you know, like abandon everybody, go up into a cave and just and stay there. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has um, replaced us with something that, is, that we have in the deen that is uh, so beautiful, and that is i'tikaf. 
The i'tikaf is seclusion in the masjid. It's seclusion in the masjid. So you're not missing any of the fard prayers in jama'ah and you're not leaving the community. But even in that public area of the masjid, you put up a tent, pitch up a tent in the masjid and you're secluding yourself for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have something in our culture called depression where a person technically secludes themselves. Is i'tikaf depression? And the answer is no, it's not. So when a person is depressed, they're sad and they're, it's like they're dying. When a person is in i'tikaf, they're re-energizing and they're becoming alive. So there's a difference between the two. It's not a seclusion of depression. It's a not a seclusion of you know, abandoning human beings and abandoning the society and so on. It's a seclusion, i'tikaf, to the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to re-energize one's heart and one's soul and their connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet used to go up and seclude himself. What would he do? He's worshipping, but there's a lot of contemplation that's going on up in this cave. The Prophet وسلم, when, I, when I go on like a journey, one of the key things that I do on journeys is I like to journal. I like to write things down. When I see someone that's kind of like, you know, like a deep thinker, very quiet, and so when, when I see someone that's really quiet, I usually recognize this person to be a very deep thinker. They think like a million times before they say something. And the Prophet ﷺ had that quality. He was an extremely deep thinker ﷺ. And so sometimes you'll see children, you know, some there's the really talkative child, and then there's the really quiet child. And I'm like, the quiet child's going to turn out to be the doctor. Right? And the one that's talking and yapping and all of that stuff, he'll probably be a salesperson or something like that. <laughs> Not saying like doctors are like the highest level of excellence or something like that. The Prophet was a deep thinker. But now, I mentioned that, okay, a person's quiet. There's the deep thinker type of visionary person. And then you have a manager type of person who's like a person who executes, gets the job done, right? Maybe they didn't think of some great idea, but they know how to execute the plan after it's been given to them. Correct? Does the Prophet know how to execute a plan? And the answer is yes, absolutely. And so he has a message. What's his goal? To bring Islam to all of humanity. And so you will see the strategy of the Prophet ﷺ when he sent people to Abyssinia, when he migrated to Habasha, when he organized you know, the, the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud, the Battle of Al-Ahzab, uh, the Battle of Khaybar, all of these battles, Treaty of Hudaybiyah, even though the companions, many of them didn't agree to uh, the conditions laid out in the treaty, the Prophet ﷺ still insisted upon it, and so on and so forth. So execution. He had that quality as well. There's a third quality. Sometimes you have the visionary, the person who has an idea, the, you know, the deep thinker. And then you have another person who's the manager of a company who you know, knows how to tell people what to do. But then they, them, the manager sometimes doesn't know how to actually do the work. They're the boss that can't get down on the ground and actually do the work as good as the workers. So you have a third component, and those are like the employees. A person who just... You know, they're told what to do and they do an excellent job at that point. They get the work done. The Prophet ﷺ, he was also such an, an example of this is like the speeches that the Prophet ﷺ gave, the work that he would do. If the Prophet ﷺ had a vision for a masjid in Medina, he had a vision for a masjid to build a masjid in Medina. 
Then he went to Medina and he managed the building of the masjid. And after managing the building of the masjid, he وسلم, participated in the building of the masjid. So all of these levels, the Prophet وسلم, was the best example. And so he wouldn't just tell people do something and not do it himself, وسلم, he has all of these qualities. This is normally, I'm telling you like, kind of like from a business perspective. This is the words that I would use for you know, things that you find in like the Arabic books. But there's another category that no non-Muslim book will mention. There's another category, visionary, managers, employees. What do you think the fourth category is? Who would guess? Yes? Slave of Allah is excellent. Okay, you guys are going to get a point for that one because <laughs> you got it. <laughs> It's like that previous point that you should have got. No, um, none of these books that you read in the library will ever bring up that, that category. That is, he's a visionary, a manager, and so on, but he is the best slave of Allah. Nobody worships Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala better than the Prophet So it's not someone coming and saying, oh, he was busy doing his work, I'm going to go and worship Allah better than the Prophet. Nobody can say that. The Prophet Ibadah was the best example. And so in your livelihood, in your business, in whatever position you take, human beings rarely comprise of two of these qualities. Sometimes the visionary doesn't know how to manage, the manager doesn't have like great vision, the employee doesn't know how to manage and has no vision. And rarely do you have someone that might have two of those qualities. Might. And usually it doesn't happen. But to have all three qualities and then on top of that be the best slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the example of the Prophet So whatever you're doing in your business, don't forget to perfect your worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with that. So you might be, let's give you a practical example. You're here, let's say, involved in da'wah organization and you are uh, the manager of the da'wah organization. Maybe someone else had an idea, some sheikh came to town and had an idea. So it wasn't your idea, but you're the manager of the idea. Okay? You're the manager and you're perfecting your worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in addition to that. Or let's say that you're not even managing stuff but the manager needed some volunteers and you agreed to be one of the volunteers. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that and you're doing the work with ihsan and with perfection and so on and on top of that you're perfecting your worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So someone's volunteering in a parking lot and then when salah time comes they do extra nawafim, extra like sunnah prayers. Why are you doing extra sunnah prayers? Because they'll say, I heard in a speech, the hadith in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's a hadith Qudsi, that my slave will continue to increase in their voluntary prayers until I love them. And so you're actually increasing in your voluntary prayers in hopes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would love you. So you're consistently working on perfecting your worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whether you're employee, manager, or visionary. The Prophet ﷺ also was not seeking to just destroy the society of all the evil, right? If you destroy a society of all evil, how do you do that? <laughs> like a nuclear bomb, all the evil is destroyed, okay? Is that what's meant? And the answer is no, it's not destruction, it is a building. So you're, you're um, forbidding the evil and commanding the good. Forbidding the evil and commanding the good. So let's say, for example, you meet, let's say, here's a Muslim debating with a Christian about, you know, beliefs here and that. And a Muslim says, you're wrong because of this, 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 and that. Okay, what did you achieve by that? 
What did you achieve? You like someone, this is their little tent that they have, and you smash their tent. Now, what do they want to do? If, if you smash someone's house, what will they want to do? They want to smash your house, right? <laughs> now, how about this? How about this? This is like the example of da'wah. You build a more beautiful house for the person, and you offer them the chance. Would you rather live in this house, or would you rather live in this beautiful castle? And the person decides for themselves that they would rather live in the beautiful castle. And so, you see, the Prophet ﷺ is building for the people and forbidding the evil by calling the people to the best way. Commanding the good, forbidding the evil. The Prophet ﷺ also, this is like leading up to this, the Prophet ﷺ was a businessman. I know I'm going to be talking about you know, poverty and so on and so forth. There was a test that the Prophet ﷺ went through in the family of the Prophet ﷺ, but realized that they were business people. So the Prophet ﷺ, he met Khadija. If you say like, so how did you meet Khadija? Radiallahu anha. And he would say, ﷺ, I used to work for her. Radiallahu ta'ala anha. He used to work for her. So Khadija, radiallahu anha, she had a caravan. She was, what was she, the, the visionary or the manager or what? She's a visionary. So she has a vision, she has these businesses and so on, and she would get managers for her caravans. So people would manage her caravans and so on until the Prophet ﷺ managed her caravan. He was younger than 25 years old when he managed her caravan. He took her caravan and he took it and took the products to an area, sold the products and made money. And that's usually what the Arabs did. They would go to these places, make money and come home with the money. What the Prophet ﷺ did is he went there, made money, and then with that money, something the Arabs had not done before, is he bought products from that area. And then he came back to Mecca and sold the products. So he made money going and coming, whereas everybody else only made money going. And so, and that was his business intellect, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was so honest and brought this, and no one had, you know, blessed his, uh, her wealth like this. And then Khadija radiallahu anha, as you know, then she then married the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Khadija radiallahu anha had everything, right? You know, they say like a woman is married for four things, for her beauty, for her um, status, for her what? For her uh, family lineage and for her deen. Khadija radiallahu anha had all qualities. So if he came to status, if someone just wanted to marry an influential woman in the community, you know, a woman who owns all these businesses, every, all the men are trying to work for her, and someone just wanted to marry for that, you know, they would want to marry Khadija. If someone would just want to marry for beauty, they would ask to marry Khadija. Or if they wanted for the, the lineage, the status, for the lineage, of course, she had great lineage, and for her righteousness and her piety, it's there too. The Prophet ﷺ married Khadija anha, and it's really beautiful, the relationship, as you see, and we're going to talk about the, uh, the commencement of the wahi, that the Prophet ﷺ, all these years didn't have a mother, didn't have a father, didn't, and, and his grandfather passed away. Abu Talib was there, but the one person that was, you know, at the end of the day, who was consoling him was Khadija anha. And you see, after he received this revelation, the person he went to was his wife Khadija. So the Prophet was in the cave. And he would go up into seclusion. And it's dark. And now you imagine you're sitting in a cave. Even just being in a cave, it's scary, isn't it? 
Has any ever, anybody ever been to a cave? Anybody hang out in a cave for a little while? I mean, just being on a mountain in the darkness, like, okay, it's not, our, it's not our lifestyle, but in the darkness, and Jabal al-Nur, anybody ever climbed Jabal al-Nur? Climbed it? Even, I've been there many times that I haven't climbed Jabal al-Nur. It's, till today, if you're doing tawaf around the Kaaba, if you're doing tawaf around the Kaaba, you can see the cave where the Prophet ﷺ used to seclude himself. So those big hotels that are like, you know, like 500 floors or something like that, right outside the Kaaba, Jebel and Nur, you can still see it in the background. It is huge, the mountain. And there are areas as you're climbing the mountain where like the, the incline goes like straight up like this. And so the Prophet ﷺ was up at the top and from the cave, you can see the Kaaba. From the cave, you can see the Kaaba. And from the Kaaba, you can see the cave. Till today, you can still see it, even with the buildings and so on. And so the Prophet ﷺ on that night, on Laylatul Qadr in Ramadan, Jibreel ﷺ came down to the Prophet ﷺ. It's a very interesting situation. This is the first meeting. And you would assume that the first meeting, and this is the Prophet ﷺ, Jibreel would introduce himself and, and, you know, and, you know, the most beautiful of assalamu alaikum and, and so on and so forth, correct? That's not the case. Jibreel salam immediately walked up to the Prophet salam and said to him, Iqra, read. The Prophet salam was a sadiq, he was the truthful one. He can't read. And so he immediately, and you see, even... The truthfulness and the innocence of the Prophet ﷺ, he said, I'm not one of those who can read. Ma ana biqari'. Jibreel ﷺ then grabbed the Prophet ﷺ. So you can imagine this. He grabbed him, encircled him, and squeezed him. Squeezed him to the point where he was almost going to die. And then he released him. And then he said to him, Read. And the Prophet ﷺ said, I can't read. And Jibreel ﷺ grabbed him again and squeezed him until he almost felt he was going to die from that. And then he let go. Until the third time he said to him, read, he said, what shall I read? And then Jibreel ﷺ said and revealed these verses, اقرأ باسم ربك الذي خلق خلق الإنسان من علق اقرأ وربك الأكرم الذي علم بالقلم علم الإنسان ما لم يعلم And then Jibreel السلام, left. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And you'll see here subhanallah the first word revealed was اقرأ Read. There's a lesson in that. And that is guidance. This like illiteracy came to an end with the messengership of the Prophet That an ummah, in order to be guided, needs to be readers. They need to be readers. And so even, in, and I read this in the Sira books, they said it is not possible for a person to lead people with guidance, true guidance, that is illiterate. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, اقرأ اسم ربك الذي خلق so if a person is going to lead people in guidance, they have to be someone who's literate, someone who has read. 
And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the Prophet that he was unlettered, he couldn't read or write, and if he could, and this is in the Quran, that the people would have said that, you know, because he could read and write that he made this up. And so from the hikmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that the Prophet, and they knew this of the Prophet he could not read or write. So he's not taking information from others and trying to write it out and, and saying that this belongs to me. But of course, Iqra is that first revelation. The Prophet ﷺ came down from the, the hill. The first person that he went to was Khadija anha. Khadija, in their 15 years of marriage, had never seen the Prophet ﷺ so distressed. She had never seen such fear in her husband's face. And at that moment, the Prophet ﷺ, when he saw her, he said to her, Zammiluni, Zammiluni. He said, cover me up, cover me up. And so she took blankets and she wrapped them around the Prophet ﷺ until he calmed down. And then he said to her, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it's in Arabic, it's Laqad Khashitu ala nafsi, which basically means I thought I was going to die tonight. This was Jibreel salam's first visit to the Prophet And so if you have hardships in your life, don't misinterpret them. Because those hardships, in fact, if you are patient with those hardships, they will make you stronger. And the lives of the Prophets, because they lived such great lives, their lives were harder than other people. So it's not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just going to give you the highest level of Jannah and you were never tested with, any, with anything. Just the whole life, you lived a fancy life and just enjoyment, enjoyment, enjoyment. And at the end of the day, you just went to Jannah al-Firdaus. It doesn't happen like that. And so even, as you see in the battle of Uhud, so many of the companions were killed shaheed. So many of them. Because Allah loved them so much that they would go to the hereafter as shuhada. Because Allah loved them, that they would go to the hereafter as shuhada. They wouldn't just die just these normal deaths that other people have. They would die the best deaths. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose for them. And so the Prophet said, the people who are tested the most are the anbiya, are the prophets. ثُمَّ الْأَمْثَلْ فَالْأَمْثَلْ that the, uh, then after that, the people, in accordance to their iman, they're tested you know, more and more. So you might find someone who doesn't go to the masjid, doesn't you know, practice too much, and so on and so forth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests them, right? But their tests might be smaller tests, but everybody's being tested. The more closer they come to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the more bigger the tests. But here's the good news. These are the glad tidings. There is no test that you cannot pass. There is no test that you, cannot, that you cannot pass, and that's a promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They, they cannot do anything to you, and nothing can happen to you in life as a test that you cannot pass. And the proof of that is the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, لَا يُكَلِّفُ اللَّهُ نَفْسًا إِلَّا وُسْعَهَا Allah does not place a burden on a soul more than it can bear. Allah will not place a burden and it cannot be that you'll be tested with something that you cannot bear. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he feared for his life 
And Khadija radiallahu anha was the first believer radiallahu ta'ala anha. As they said, of the first believers was Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha, a woman, a man, that was Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, his best friend, a boy, a young boy, who was Ali radiallahu anhu, and a slave. And the slave was Zayd radiallahu ta'ala The people that became Muslim immediately were the people closest to the Prophet This is a key point because anybody who's studying the history, if let's suppose an Orientalist, and I said I wouldn't bring it up, but if an Orientalist says the Prophet, peace be upon him, was lying, then the first people to acknowledge his lie would be people who know him the best. So history shows that it is not possible that he would be a liar and the closest people to him would become Muslim. The closest people to him. In fact, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is not even, there was no questions when Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu became Muslim. Prophet sallallahu said, I'm the messenger of Allah. And Abu Bakr's response to that was, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammad He's saying his shahada in response to that statement. The Prophet said, There was not a person that I you know, presented Islam to them and invited Islam, except that they had questions. They're like, what about this? What about that? Let me ask you about this. Let me ask you about that. He said, the only person who, did at, who asked no questions was Abu Bakr The people closest to the Prophet So now, there's a problem going on in Mecca. That problem is... The worship of other than Allah. The Prophet ﷺ, it wasn't that, you know when other messengers would come, a messenger would come and they would be followed up with another messenger. And then followed up with another messenger. The messengers that came in the past, they were sent to specific people. And the Prophet ﷺ said, I was sent to all of humanity. And that's actually something interesting about like Judaism, Christianity and so on is that their, their prophets never came with the intention that this would be a universal religion. So that's why you'll have something, let's say, in Christianity, as it goes to another country, you know, it doesn't work out. But it wasn't meant to be universal. So when someone says, well, let's take this universally, it doesn't have the qualities that can take it universally. The Prophet ﷺ was sent to all of humanity. And the Islam that he brought wasn't just clarifying the mistakes of the people that came before. There were so many things that the people were doing wrong that it needed like a major overhaul. Like everything needed to be established again so that everybody would get it correct and they would get it correct all the way till the Day of Judgment. That it would always be there for those searching for the truth. When a community accepts something culturally, it becomes very hard to pull that out of a community. I notice, like, for example, let's say smoking in a building. Smoking in a building. You guys don't have that here, do you? People don't walk into a building and smoke. Now, if you go into other countries, many different countries, you might even go into the airport in a, in, in a Muslim country, and I'm sure it's in non-Muslim countries too. You go into a Muslim country, and the security guard is smoking inside the building under a sign that says no smoking. Right? And he's the one who's supposed to be enforcing these laws. It's like, uh, you're not allowed to smoke, and he's smoking, and now you see someone else. Like, this happened to me. Someone was smoking in the airport, and I want to go and tell the security guard, and I saw him smoking. <laughs> and, you know, like, what can you do? Because culturally, it's accepted. How do you extract something once it's culturally accepted? 
until the culture flips. Now, if someone, for example, here in London or um, somewhere else in Canada, they're very strong at this. A lot of Canadians smoke. You'd think that they don't, so they smoke, but they smoke outside the building. They smoke outside the building because culturally it's unacceptable to smoke inside the building. Everybody will like hiss and boo and all of this and give ugly looks. And, and so the person feels, you know, like, you know, I can't do this. So now shirk, at the time of the Prophet becomes culturally acceptable. And then the opposite of that is something culturally that they don't accept. And it becomes a very difficult situation when that happens. So I'll go through the major sins that the Arabs are involved in. And these sins continue even till our times. You'll have different communities are very much, you know, um, steeped in these things. You had shirk al-akbar. Shirk al-akbar, which is major shirk, that is associating partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two, intoxications. Intoxications, alcohols. Number three, gambling. And as you can see, just as I'm saying these things, these have become proliferated through our cultures, right? The intoxications, the gambling. Uh, number four, marrying without numbers, meaning like people would marry as many women as they want. And today, they're not marrying as many women as they want, but they have girlfriends as much as they want. Uh, number five is killing their children, specifically girls. Do people still kill their children today? Yeah, with abortions, they're killing children all the time. They just have, they found a way to do it in a way that's, that, you know, like before the child can come out and everybody gets emotionally attached to the child, they can kill the child before it's born, right? So the, the abortion issue is still a big issue. And specifically girls, either they're not going to kill them, but even amongst Muslim cultures, they still have like this jahiliyyah in them that they'll think because someone was blessed with a girl that somehow, you know, it's, it's like something bad. Or if you don't have a boy in, in, in these cultures, it's like, you know, make du'a for a boy. Killing their children. Number six, what, which is uh, superstitions. <laughs> superstitions. Laws that they make up. Igniting wars for the foolish, most foolish of reasons and revenge killings. Do people still ignite wars? <laughs> you better believe it. Revenge killings, what a revenge killing is, is that if, like, if you kill my brother, I'll kill your whole tribe. That's like a revenge killing. It's like the whole tribe, they didn't kill your brother, but because you're related to the person who killed my brother, they will kill you. And then these, these battles will go on for like 100 years. Because 100 years ago, someone from your tribe killed our tribe, killed someone from our tribe. And then, you know, it's forgotten what happened. They're just killing each other just by, by this nature. Ibn Abbas, anhu, to read about all this like foolishness that the Arabs had, he said, if it pleases you to know the foolishness of the Arabs, then read over 130 verses of Surah Al-An'am. So Surah Al-An'am, there's about 130 verses in there that speaks about the Arabs and how they would, you know, make up laws and so on and so forth. What I'm going to do right now is we're establishing the problem. A lot of time people in the, in the study of the seerah, they go straight into the stories, right? And even for my seerah class, I'm going to do more of the story, stories maybe like late tonight or tomorrow. And once the stories start, everybody's like calm, well, this is what we came for and so on and so forth. But when I'm establishing things where you actually have to write down and start learning things, a lot of people, that side of their brain doesn't work very good. <laughs> and then they're like, well, just get to the story so we can cry, eh? <laughs> 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 
But here's the difference. Here's the difference. Inshallah Ta'ala, you would truly benefit from the stories when you know the background. What was the mission of the Prophet What was he calling the people to? Did he just get into fights with people? He just tell them, worship Allah and then get into fights with them? There's more to the seerah than that. And so what I'm going to be taking you on, it might be like take the next few hours, is establishing what was the message of the Prophet ﷺ, what were the things that he started with. This is something interesting, you know, um, a question a brother asked yesterday is like, for a new Muslim, what would, you know, what, uh, what books did you recommend? I believe the question was something like that. How would you like to find out what did the Prophet ﷺ start with, with the people that became Muslim? So someone just became Muslim, what did he start with? What, was the, what did Allah start with, with the people? So that when you want to know the methodology of how do you start and where do you begin, this is what I'm talking about here. Now, understanding that, now inshallah ta'ala you'll pay more attention to what I'm about to say here. So that when I go through these points, this is what they started with, this is what they were talking about, these were the main issues, then for yourself, Allah blesses you, maybe someone becomes Muslim at your hands, what do you start with them with? You go back to your serial notes and say, well, if the Prophet started with these three topics, these are the three topics I'm going to be giving da'wah to. And these are the three topics I'm going to be teaching. If Allah blesses you to organize a halaqa in your university or your masjid, what topics are you going to choose? The methodology that people normally take is they go to the newspaper and they'll say, what is the Guardian talking about? All right, okay, here's our halaqa topic. Right? This is where they get their methodology from. They get it from those who are speaking against Islam, and they're like, let's just refute. And then it's not really that successful, correct? Like women in Islam, someone has a lecture on women in Islam. How many people at the end of a lecture on women in Islam, they stood up and I'm like, I'm ready to become Muslim. It doesn't happen. But believe me, if you follow proper methodology, it's very simple. I remember one sister in our Maghrib classes, I, it might be as simple as, you know, these surahs that were revealed, surahs al-taqweer, one of the first surahs revealed, right? Or surahs al-muzammir and so on and so forth. She said that she was at a lecture and the, the Muslim speaker, he recited, Qulhu Allahu Ahad. Qulhu Allahu Ahad, Allahu Samad, Lam Yalad, Walam Yurad, Walam Yakullahu Kufuan Ahad. And then uh, the surah, which is, Qulhu Allahu Say, He is Allah the One. Allahu Samad, the self sufficient. Doesn't need anyone. And he doesn't need help or nourishment or anything. He's self-sufficient, Allah. Allah samad lam yalid. He wasn't born, walam yulad, nor did he give any birth. Meaning that there are no children of Allah, no boys or girls. Walam yakullahu kufuwan ahad. And there is none like unto Allah. So he just read Surah Qurullah Ahad, and then he said, who believes in this? And she said, she's in the Maghrib class, she said, I raised my hand, and she said, I believe in that. And she gave her shahada. Okay, now, and, and you might think that, no, you got to be intellectual and discuss and all of these things. And yet, with all your intellectual discussion, nobody's become a Muslim. And so you find proper methodology. SubhanAllah, this is what I would do when someone says, you know, what are, what are, the, what are the issues? What's stopping you from becoming Muslim? And they'll say X, Y, Z. I'm like, okay, let's put this aside. Now, really, what's stopping you from becoming Muslim? Because these debates and these issues, this and that, that's not the real issue. Some guy's like, why does a woman cover her hair? I'm like, did you wake up this morning worrying about why Muslim women cover their hair? Could you care less why they cover their hair? Like, you're just saying this as a refuge, just trying to distract me so I won't bother you, correct? That's what the issue is. It's, it's a diversion. What's the real issue? Like, the real issue is, when it gets down to it, 
I'm afraid that if I become Muslim, my family and friends will abandon me. It might be something like that. That's when it really gets down to what the real issue is. And now, as you can see, what the Prophet was up against, this is cultural. The culture of the people is saying, you worship the idols, this is what we do in our culture. If you choose to worship other than the idols, then we will abandon you. And that's what they had to face. The Arabs had some good characteristics, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to send this message amongst the Arabs. So they did have good characteristics. And as we said, it's not just a complete destruction of their society, but it's taking the good and intensifying it and taking the bad and like forbidding the bad. So of the good things that they had was their ignorance wasn't twisted. Wasn't twisted ignorance. What I mean by twisting, like Greek philosophy is twisted ignorance. Like you talk to the person, they're like, what about predestiny? They're like all this, you know, philosophical talk, stuff like that. Try guiding a person like that, and you're going, for, you're going for a marathon. Right? Whereas the Arabs, they just had like some foolishness. They worship an idol. It's wrong. You know, it can't help itself, and it, you know, and it can't bring any help to anybody else. And they're like, you're right. <laughs> and then that's it, and they become Muslim. So their ignorance wasn't twisted. Uh, they are, they were committed after becoming Muslim. When, uh, when, when they believe in something, they become very committed to it. I noticed this quality amongst present day, amongst, uh, you know, just from my nature, uh, sorry, the people I've come in contact with, I've seen this quality amongst Libyans. Libyans, I've seen this quality that when they believe in something, they're like, you know what, this is the end all of everything when they, they're committed to it. Any Libyans here? <laughs> no Libyans? But they're definitely not committed to a mother class. <laughs> okay, number three, they had the purest brains to memorize and to carry the message. So you'd see these companions, the Prophet would say something and they would you know, commit it to memory. And the Prophet, in his language, the Prophet, when he would speak, you could count how many words that he used. And you could memorize what he said, sallallahu alayhi wa That's how clearly the Prophet, sallallahu spoke. And he wasn't just, you know, when, when people are like reading Quran or like they're, re, you know, all fast like this. That wasn't the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa It was clear. It was, you know, like the statements are made very clearly. You could memorize it and you could count the words that the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa said. So the Arabs had very pure um, brains to memorize. And they memorized all these hadith. And they carried the message of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi the message of Islam. They had, they honored high character. So this was something very, you know, noble to them. If someone had high character, they respected that. And contrary to popular belief, the Arabs loved freedom. And they will not submit to anyone until, unless they were the greatest leader. This obviously was in the past. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the Arabs, if someone was some foolish leader, they would not submit to a person like that. They honored their freedom and they wouldn't allow for someone to just come and enslave them or to shout at them and, and so on. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this is actually a verse that's mentioned a lot. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, By you know, the mercy of Allah, you were gentle with them. If you were like harsh, 
like hard-hearted with them, if you were harsh and hard-hearted, they would have dispersed from amongst you. Giving you an example, now this hadith, this ayah of the Quran, a lot of times people mention it, a virtue of the Prophet and it definitely is, but it's also a virtue of the companions of the Prophet They loved their freedom and they had such high, like they had, um, like their self-esteem, they wouldn't allow for someone to just come at them and shout at them and curse them and, and, and trick them. An example of someone who was harsh, hard-hearted and tricked his people was Fir'aun. Okay, so Fir'aun, he would go and shout at people. He was like, Inna rasulakum He's like, this, this prophet that was sent to you is crazy. He's a foolish madman. So they'd use swear words. They would, um, he'd get his magicians and trick the people and be very harsh with them. When the magicians became Muslim, they prostrated to Allah. Fir'aun said, I'm going to cut your hands off. How dare you become Muslim without asking me permission first? You know, I haven't even given you permission to believe. And so the people around Fir'aun, even though they saw what the magicians saw, they didn't become Muslim. Why didn't they become Muslim at the time of Fir'aun? The reason they didn't become Muslim is because they were not like the Sahaba of the Prophet The Sahaba, radiallahu anhum, had they been in that same situation, they would all become Muslim. Because they will not allow for someone to enslave them like that. Whereas the people of Fir'aun were like, you know, like slave mentality, they were people that would accept enslavement of people. Okay? And, and so similarly in our times as a da'i implementing this, you have some Muslim leaders that are harsh and hard-hearted. And you have, and, and people follow people like that. They'll sit and complain all they want about the harsh-hearted. As soon as you see someone complain, you just realize because you're a slave, dude. Because you've, you can just sit in your houses and complain, but you're accepting it because you can't stand up and be courageous. You can't stand up and do anything about it. You accept the situation, and instead, you choose backbiting as a means of you know, changing the situation. That's not, gossip and backbiting is not going to change things. Whereas the companions of the Alanim, they would make positive change. For Al-Maghrib Institute, this is kind of like a methodology that I had in the Dawah, in North America, and so on and so forth. If I see something that I don't like in the community, I do not go and backbite about it to my friends in, at dinner parties. What I do is I immediately proactively think to myself, what is it that I would like to see in the community? And then I go and proactively do that. Okay? So there has been nothing of Al Maghrib Institute that has been in refutation. We don't deal with refutations. We don't look at what other people are doing and trying to refute them or beat them or something like that. What we do instead is, there might be a situation in the community, what would we like to see in the community? Let's suppose people are smoking in the hallways in a Muslim you know, country and so on and so forth. What would I like to see? I would like to see people using miswak in the hallways. I would like to see people with itr. So what would I do proactively to make that a reality? Do you see what I'm saying? And then you start working towards a project like the miswak in the hallway project. Okay, and you start building up things proactively of what you want to see done in, uh, in the society. The Arabs as well didn't deny the existence of Allah. So it wasn't that they were denying the existence of Allah. They were just associating partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So for example, when they would go for hajj, they would say, Labayk Allahumma labayk, labayk la sharika laka labayk. And then they would add a part to that uh, uh, when they get to la sharika lak. 
They would say the talbiyah, right? That's, that's what they were reciting in the, in the hajj. La sharika lak, you have no a partner. And then they would add on to it, illa sharikan huwa lak, which means except a partner that belongs to you. Tamlikuhu wa ma malak. And the Prophet ﷺ, when they would say, la sharika lak, he would tell them, stop. Like that's it. If you just stop there, you know, that's tawheed. But they would associate partners. So they would say, there's no partner except, with you except a partner that belongs to you. That's what they would add to it. There were um, 360 idols surrounding the Kaaba. So during these years, there were 360 idols surrounding the Kaaba all, the, you know, all throughout this time. All throughout this time, even when the Prophet ﷺ, all these years in Mecca, there was 360 idols around the Kaaba. Even as they migrated, you're talking about like even six years after Hijrah, there's still 360 idols around the Kaaba. The Prophet ﷺ did not, did not take an axe and smash all the idols during the night. He didn't do that, ﷺ. Could he have done that? Of course he could have done that. He could have brought Abu Bakr and Umar or something and then went and took an, uh, a hammer and smashed all the idols. He didn't smash it. Instead, the idols were smashed out of their hearts. Now, the smashing of the idols, Ibrahim salam did that. Ibrahim salam did, the Prophet salam did not do that. He left them until when they conquered Mecca, in front of all the people of Mecca, they had become Muslim, the Prophet salam smashed every single idol. And with every idol that he smashed, nobody stood up, nobody got angry, nobody tried fighting or anything like that. He smashed every single idol, and as he was smashing it, he said, وَقُلْ جَاءَ الْحَقُّ وَزَهَقَ الْبَاطِلِ إِنَّ الْبَاطِلَ كَانَ زَهُقَ That say, the truth has come and falsehood has perished. Because falsehood by its nature was meant to perish. In front of everybody, and there have never been idols ever since.